So I've been thinking a little bit about seasons, especially because we decided as a team at the podcast here to put out content and to record episodes in a season format. I think it was primarily because it gave us a focus as a team and it also would hopefully create these meaningful bookends to a listening experience. And also for anyone who's even coming to our podcast as a first time listener to say, oh, I'm more interested in this than that. And to kind of understand how to dig through the files of our seasons. But it has made me think a lot about seasons and seasonality, especially because I feel like there's this cliche about experiences in motherhood being seasons. And I Even a long, long time ago when my first child was very young, had a fellow writer friend say to me that an older writer that she knew who was a professor at a university where she was teaching said, you know, well, it's just the motherhood season and don't worry, you know, you'll come out of it and then you'll have plenty of time to write. And something in me, perhaps it's a bit of my pathological demand avoidance, which I'm working through, (laughs) Uh, but I feel like something bristled in me the idea that motherhood as a season would stand outside of that or that there would be this distinct change and shift and that my writing life was incongruous with my motherhood. And yet here I am with three kids and feel that is kind of the case. (laughs) Not going to lie. It is incongruous. And I think it's mostly incongruous in the moments where there isn't a structure built to support two endeavors, especially that sit entirely outside of the traditional capitalist norms, if you will. And so I feel like I have the most internal struggle when I recognize that my work doesn't have a value in a traditional sense and that the work I do as a mother, so my creative work and the work I do as a mother also is not valued in this system. And trying to remind myself of the values of that, trying to say, okay, I'm going to spend time today working on this literary fiction that I know will not pay our bills. Does it matter? I don't know. Uh, Listeners, does it matter? I mean, I think that if you're here, you are a believer in the value of art and the way in which art does so much revolutionary work outside of the systems that obviously are incredibly oppressive to so many people, not only people, but to the environment, to all of the other living organisms that we share the world with. As you're listening, please shoot us a note to, you can either shoot us an email to hello at postpartumproduction.com or write us a note on our Instagram page. But I'm really curious to hear how you engage with this struggle and how you define seasons. So on that note, this season coming up on the Postpartum Production Podcast, we will be taking a little bit of a view from above, a little bit of a step back to examine some of the bigger picture questions that we've dug into in the first season. So while there will be sprinklings of practitioners, writers, poets, artists, etc., who will join us primarily because they have a work that is coming out soon and it makes sense to talk to them while they're engaging with an audience more deeply at this particular time. But we're really 
stepping back and talking to a range of what we see as experts on specific subject matters to examine this particular moment, this season, and to just have a slightly different angle on things for a little bit. Because while I know I loved the conversations we had in the previous season, and I know so many listeners did as well, it's just sort of like a little pause and a little breath and like, this is a different season. What does this look like? So we are excited to share that with you. And this teaser to the season will include a little bit of a preview of recordings we've already done and hopefully give you a sense for what's to come. And we're really excited about that. We also this season will hopefully be including some more narrative audio features that are coming from our listeners. So if there's something that you would like to speak about and record and that we can help you to produce in a format that has a more narrative flow to it, we're here for that. So that's a really exciting collaborative endeavor that we're starting here. So definitely, again, reach out via our contact methods. And we're really excited for what's to come. So here's a little bit of what is coming up. Enjoy, and we will be excited to engage more with everyone soon. How do you write about motherhood? How do you talk about motherhood? How do you turn it into a biographical narrative? I really wanted there to be a narrative that wasn't just about the first year or just about the first months or just about pregnancy, as much as I love books like that, you know, as much as I love the Argonauts or Rachel Cusk's writing on the first year of her motherhood. In a lot of ways, I'm doing this really nutty thing, which is trying to find out the experience of motherhood by looking at other people's experience when it would be much more logical to dig into my own experience. But I felt a little bit confined by my own perspective, by each single person's perspective. I felt like I wanted to see what was out there from multiple perspectives and over time. And it ended up being kind of a big bag of stuff, I feel. (laughs) But it was also, somehow or other, it was the book that I wanted to read. It was the book that I needed to read about motherhood. And I kept thinking, oh, I'm doing this wrong. And eventually I just thought, you know, I'm writing this kind of monster of a book that doesn't fit any of the categories. I might as well just make it my monster and stick more legs and fingers (laughs) and bits and ears on it. I think because what I was saying that this feeling of being in constant transformation was so important for me to recreate that the presentness of that, of that transformation, which is something that that you have to document because otherwise you forget it. I mean, and it also happens when you have a small child that they change so fast and all the time that I think that's one of the reasons why you also keep these baby journals because otherwise you forget. It's very difficult for me right now to think what Sylvester was like when he was four months or two months or uh, there were all of these small changes, but that were so important and so surprising. So... I needed that. I needed that feeling of immediacy. And I think that the journal 
does that for me, the, the genre of the journal. But also I liked I like working with these genres that are liminal in a way, that can be literature but that are not necessarily literature, and that I think women from many ages have found a space to write in those genres. You can find literature, I mean, writing from women in cooking recipe books, in herbaries, in journals, in letters, in all of these things that are writing but are not necessarily considered literature. I love working in those spaces. The thing that has not changed for me is the need to protect the time that I need to achieve the creative goals. You can think about your creative work while you are driving, cooking, walking, standing by the sides of a sporting event, but thinking is not enough. You have to have time to actually draw the thing or write some lines of the poem. And also thinking while in motion is not enough. It takes designated thinking time. So sometimes the work is an hour or you know, 15 minutes, half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour, whatever you have sitting with a laptop or an open notebook or a blank page or nothing but definitely not your phone and definitely not the internet and just thinking, well, what would that next step be? What am I trying to do? And then taking those next steps. But the biggest barrier is always, there's always more to do in that busy household. Doesn't matter how old your kids are, or what it is that you're dealing with. There's always more in your inbox. There's always more in the dishwasher. So you have to make a concerted effort to set aside that time. At some point, I read a passage by Ursula Quinn where she talks about heroism, and she's frustrated with heroism. She feels like it is just the old fantasy of men with swords slaying the dragon and rescuing the maiden, and she wants a new way of telling stories. So she said, I don't think a hero can be a mother. I don't think a mother can be a hero. And I felt this terrible kind of irritation and frustration and that made me realize I want mothers to be heroes. I want them to be heroes, not in the slaying the dragon sense, but I just want them to be the heroes of their own stories to be able to be at the center and not pushed off to the side. And it made me realize that I hadn't conceived of them that way yet. I was writing about their motherhood as things happening to them and not as things that they were doing, things that were changing them. And that was, I think, the insight that made it possible for me to finish the book. Sometimes the most obvious images or references we have about motherhood came from men, starting from the Virgin Mary, which is like in Mexico, which is a Catholic country, it's like the epitome of motherhood. But for me, it was very important to look at the way in which women understood themselves. And that wasn't as easy to find. You can take any two years of my life and there's not a lot of consistency. 
So it's always going to be different. This next two years will have features that the last two years didn't. So we're always a different person writing a different book. So it's always going to be a little different. At some point you get into a role and you have a process. But I think the answer to that question was, I think it changes because I change and my life changes and what's going on around me changes. Right from the beginning in anything you say about motherhood and intellectual life, there's a perceived split between them that there's an idea that they cannot exist together, that the kind of emotional and physical labor of care and the labor of thinking, the labor of intellectual work, they just can't go together, not only in terms of time, but in terms of thinking about them, conceiving the combination of those two and what it might look like. And of course, there's a lot of moral judgment that comes into that because there's this old idea that thinking too much is going to be bad for the baby it's going to draw you away from that labor of care. It's going to make Mm. you emotionally inaccessible to this family that is making demands on you. There's a fear that women will neglect their care work, I think. I mean, the whole society is built on women's care Mm -hmm. work. I understand why it's policed so much. I understand why the motherhood police is always telling you that you're doing it wrong, is always asking Mm -hmm. you when you're going to have another child or why didn't you have another child, or is always voicing an opinion about how many days your kid should be in daycare, whether you should be leaving it to cry or not leaving it to cry. I mean, it is the basis of civilization. It is not really so strange that people want to control it. Hmm. But you do have to turn your back on that at some point. You have to say, okay, I am going to define it for myself. But it is hard. And there is this sense of mother and thinker as a negative space. I truly believe that Having a child is easier if you have a support net and a community that helps you raise the child. Otherwise, it's really difficult. There are some examples in the world of places where there's a national care system that really becomes that net for the women that don't have it in a, I don't know, like easier way. And there's in Mexico, there's a lot of women fighting for it. Right now, and I'm sure in the United States as well, I mean, I've read a lot about the childcare system struggle to to have one because otherwise it's just, as you say, it it becomes a privilege and it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. It should be a right. This idea also that your time doesn't completely belong to you, that if your child is sick, you will not go to work. It doesn't matter how... (laughs) How much you need to or want to or the system demands that you do. That is why motherhood is still so incompatible with the capitalist work system that we have in these countries and why we need so much effort from 
public policies to be able to make compatible motherhood with work. There is so much work <laughs> to be done in those fields still. I've been very lucky because I have this support net that allows me to work in what I like. And I also have a very flexible work, which is uh, writing, something you can do on your phone, you can do on your own time. But there are many women that don't have that privilege, that have different kinds of jobs and that struggle a lot to find the time. So yes, I think this is a, a political, a philosophical, and a, <laughs> and a practical question. The problem is not that you are privileged. The problem is that we have a system in which many people do not have the very basic things that they need. So, uh, you know, when we talk about that as, as, you know, appreciating our privilege, yeah, check where we are. But also, every parent should have access to childcare and functioning schools. That should not be a privilege. Like we should, we must never forget that that is not meant to be a privilege only accorded to a certain few. The goal is that we all have those things. So don't put the burden on your, your babysitter time to create the most beautiful thing. Taking care, especially of a small child, is something that is very difficult to to do while doing something else. I mean, you have to be there. You have to be present. I mean, that can be, of course, tiring because it, it's exhausting. And I think it's also wonderful in the sense that it brings you to the present. It makes you forget about speculating and going around stupid things in your brain. You have to be there doing what they're doing. And for me, that has been a precious learning just being there. And that is something, as you said, that capitalism struggles with. When you get pregnant, the body becomes a text, a text for someone else, and a text that is changing all the time and that you have to decipher. As you've heard, the start to this season has already been full of really insightful and inspiring conversations. We're taking a step back to examine the particular formats, genres, and frames we use in our art and our parenting when we're both caregivers and artists. We're questioning the role of support, of how capitalist and patriarchal norms constrain our caregiving and our artistic pursuits, and where we sit in all this today in these bodies of lived experiences. We're excited for these episodes to launch in coming weeks and months and invite you to join us as listeners on the Postpartum Production Podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Salamini, and this is the Postpartum Production Podcast. If you like what you've heard today, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating, which will help us reach more listeners like you. For regular updates, visit our website, www.postpartumproduction.com. Follow us on Instagram at Postpartum Production Podcast and subscribe to our Substack newsletter. Thank you for listening today and being a valuable part of this community of caregivers and artists who are redefining the work that we do and pushing forward with a new system in which art and caregiving are increasingly valued and supported.